Everybody glad to be in church today? All right, all right. Some of you guys got to, uh, you know, the whole time change thing doesn't bother me because, you know, it's just one hour closer to church and one hour closer to my coffee. <laughs> right, everybody? Hey, listen, if you don't know who I am, my name is Pastor Derek, and I want to welcome you to Connect. I'm so glad that you're uh, with us today. And I also want to welcome our online and cable viewers. Can you give them a big hand for me today? Thank you for being with us. We're never quite sure which service we're going to post. Um, but what I do want to tell you, because it's already happened, is um, for some of you that are part of Connect, this is your spiritual family or you're a frequent flyer here, we launched a campus today in Framingham. Come on. Yes. And, uh, and it was very successful. Um, just shy of 300 people were there today at church in Framingham, and uh, we packed out the whole first floor. Uh, we have a balcony that we're going to believe God he's going to fill also. And um, it was just awesome. My wife and I um, went, and my son and, and, and a few different people went over there to um, kind of experience it, and I wanted to shake hands and, and meet people that were there for the first time. What an awesome what an awesome thing. It was just amazing. Um, you need to know that uh, the Dream Team in Framingham just did an incredible job. Uh, the place looks spectacular. Um, we're in a middle school over there, and it looked like a church. And um, the school probably doesn't like that, but anyway, um, it looked awesome. And um, just, um, just a beacon of hope and a, and, and a light into the world and um, excellence everywhere. In fact, I actually stayed to execrate just before coming here to the third service to be with you guys. And um, my plan was to shake as many hands as possible, but nobody was going out the door. They were just staying. It was just very, a very sticky environment in, in a good way. Like people would just, now there was Ponchicasu there, so that might have had something to do with that. If some of you guys know what I'm talking about, okay? It's a secret. If you don't know what that is, um, get ready, get ready. <laughs> um, it's, it's an amazing food. So, um, so I just, every time I saw people go out the door, their face looked like chipmunks. You know what I mean? They were just like stuffed. And they're like, just short night, struggle. Church was great, you know, it was awesome. Anyway, but how cool what technology can do where we can reach more uh, people using technology and, and also steward better the resources that we have. So the ability to have two locations. By the way, we are one church, many locations. Can we say that out loud? One church, many locations. And so this is just the first of seven that we believe we're going to launch in the next 10 years by faith. Amen. We also, yeah, go ahead and give the Lord a big hand clap for that. And I hope you guys get behind us. It's so cool what it does. It raises up new leaders. It raises the bar and uh, just, just really encourages people. We actually um, committed the, the offering for the Framingham campus. Uh, all of that money is being given. Um, the, the, the program has not been selected yet, but something within the school system or something within the community, we just gave that whole first offering to the community. So very, very cool to be able to just sow because we want the people to know that we're going there to, to, to invest in, that we're not takers, we're givers. See, the people that are coming to church for the first time, you have to get the bad news out before you can get the good news in. And sometimes you have to spend money to do that. Sometimes you have to spend a lot of effort and energy to do that because they think, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? What do you want from me? We don't want anything. We want to give you something. Freely we have received. Freely we give. You know? And, and sometimes we won't have silver and gold. Sometimes it'll be, you know, a, a, a miracle. Sometimes it'll be, uh, you know, a friendship or something like that. But, man, it's good when you can just say, hey, we don't want anything. We're here to give. Amen? So it was great to be able to say that to that campus there today. Well, we're in a series entitled The Problem of God. You guys got your worship guides? You want to get ready? Get ready, get ready. We're going to take some notes. Today we're talking about the problem of evil and suffering. And um, this particular series is, is, is kind of around this notion, okay? The problem of God. Well, I don't have a problem with God. 
Well, Christians, Christians, for the most part, see God as the solution, not the problem. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a Christian. Uh, but there are people who are not Christians who see and have problems with God. And I would say categorically, some of us, have Christi- some of us as Christians have a problem with God in certain areas. And so we're going to address those areas. And this series is based on a book I read that impacted me. It was called The Problem of God. Pastor Mark Clark, if you're interested in the structure and some of the uh, content comes from this particular book. And Pastor Mark, who now is a megachurch pastor in Vancouver, Canada, was an atheist like my dad. And um, he became a Christian, became a pastor, and he became an author and a megachurch pastor. And one of the reasons, though, that um, uh, I was so attracted to this is because he was a skeptic who leaned into his skepticism. He was a doubt who doubted his doubts. He went deeper than the surface opinions that we have about certain things. Is everybody tracking with me so far? So this series is to get us to doubt our doubts and and to say that skepticism is not bad, but just don't keep it at a surface level. God has for us answers to the problems that we are struggling with. And so some of the toughest questions that are out there, we won't address them all, but we'll do about five or six of them during the series. Last week, we talked about the problem of the existence of God. Who was here last week for that? Praise God, about half of you, and the other half just won't raise your hand no matter what I say. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to get you. Um, so we dealt with, you know, is, is God real? And, and what is the basis for that? And we even stepped out of the theological and some of the... Um, you know, and got more into the philosophical. We got into some of the things that sometimes activate our brain. And sometimes people don't think Christians, you know, we're, we're ignorant. We've checked our brains at the door. And I just want you to know, I became a Christian born out of subjective experience, but also objective evidence. In other words, I've had an encounter with God, and you can't take that away from me. I think a person uh, with, an ex- with an argument is at the mercy of a person with an experience. You can tell me, oh, that's your argument. I don't know. But all I know is, you know, I met God. All I know is he healed me. All I know is he, sa- he redeemed me. All I know is I'm a different person since I met him. I have an, I have an experience. I have, I have a subjective experience. That's my experience. But I also have an ob- objective evidence. There are things that I can see, that I learned, that I studied, that I received. I've, I've seen the breadcrumbs, the trail that leads to truth. And I begin to pursue that. And that's what this series is about. Is everybody with me out there? Because everybody has a belief system. Christians, we know, have a belief system. Sometimes its basis is minimal, minimal but atheists have belief systems. Uh, agnostics have belief systems. People that say, I don't know what I believe, that's your belief system. Everybody has a belief system, okay? But what we want to do in this particular series is we want people to follow where the evidence leads, not just where we hope it leads. I don't want you to just base it on hope. I just believe, I believe, I believe. It's pie in the sky because most Christians are just three questions away from their belief system collapsing. And I'm here to challenge you as your pastor that sometimes you you know who you believe in, but you don't know what you believe. Or what you believe is in shallow waters. And about the, about the time somebody starts to poke you and probe on you, you, f- you freak out. Uh, what do you believe? I believe in creation. Why do you believe in creation? Um, uh, you know, do you believe in seven literal days? Do you, what do you believe about the gap theory? What? Everybody said, run for the hills. And that's sometimes why we're not an ambassador for Jesus Christ. That's sometimes why we're not a witness for God. Because we, we know who maybe we believe in, but we don't know what we believe in. God wants us to know both in order for us to be an impact, a salt and light in the world. 
And so there's evidence that clearly leads towards God. Today, we're going to deal with probably one of the top questions that people have, in particular outside the church, but also in the church, and it's called the theodicy question. Theodicy basically is talking about this subject of evil and suffering. And so if God's so good, you've heard this, right? How many have heard this question before? If he's so merciful, if he's so compassionate, if he's so awesome, how come? Fill in the blank. Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? What, what is going on here? And this question has tripped people up for thousands of years. It's caused people to, to doubt God, that there could be a, a merciful, loving God. Instead, they look at him like Zeus, you know, and he's just up there th- hurling lightning bolts, and, and people are afraid. I invite people to church sometimes, and, and, and different reasons why they won't come. Some, you know, some of them say, I was talking about this on Facebook Live yesterday, some say oh, it's not my natural habitat. You know, as if, as if what we do in order to grow always has to come naturally. I don't play certain sports because it didn't come naturally because I had other sports that came naturally to me. It's, but, but I'm missing out sometimes. I don't go to the gym because it doesn't come naturally. That's what people will say. And how many know that sometimes good things for us don't come naturally? So we want to invite people to church so they can have a supernatural encounter with God. But some people also say, I don't want to go to church because this, many people have said this to me because as soon as I cross the door into that church, God's going to strike me with lightning. Anybody ever heard something like that before? Yeah, because that's their, that's their view. That's their view of God. Because they don't see him as a good God, a good, good father. That's who you are. No, they, they couldn't sing that song. So because they're thinking, well, look around. Why doesn't he stop it if he's such a good, good father? And so the primary obstacle to faith ultimately causes them to adopt maybe another faith, make up their own faith, become an atheist, my father fundamentally was a person who became an atheist because of these type of reasons. They were intellectual questions that couldn't be answered with the people he observed and the people he saw. And so eventually he just saw people as weak-willed people, uh, not intelligent people who just needed a crutch to get through life. That's kind of the classic atheistic posture towards that. And that's a result Typically of this theodicy question. I just can't believe in a God who would inflict cruelty on that which he created. That's the premise. Is everybody tracking out there? Okay? Now there was this atheist. I'm going to reference and give you a bunch of quotes today. A lot of slides today. But there was this atheist named David Hume in the 18th century. And he said this. He said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? In other words, he doesn't have the power. Well, then he's impotent. Powerless. And some people believe in order to answer this, imp- this theodicy question, it must mean God doesn't have the power to really intervene. That's why this happens. That's one way to rationalize this. Is he able but not willing? Then he's malevolent. In other words, he's a bad God. He's an evil God. He's, he's Zeus with lightning bolts. Well, what if he's both willing and able? Then why is there evil? See, this is kind of the thinking that's out there. And I've talked to many people over the years uh, interpersonal relationships, sometimes group dynamics, where the answer to this question is rarely satisfied through a theological response or an academic response. Everybody tracking so far? In other words, why? It's, I, I can't give you a theological or academic response that will satisfy you. The reason for that is because the problem isn't intellectual or academic, it's personal. It's personal. And here's the thing. Pain is personal. Pain is personal. What I want to do a little bit today is I want to go a little bit deeper than an answer. Because 
If you're honest, the answer won't fully satisfy. I'm not saying we're not going to get to answers. I'm just going to say that first we need to deal with a deeper problem and the reality of pain being personal. In other words, take it back in your own personal life. Maybe not for all of you, but when you were a kid, maybe life was tough. Some of you experienced difficulties, tragedies when you were a kid. Maybe you came up, grew up in a terrible home, an abusive home. Maybe you grew up in a home where your father beat you and he he was an alcoholic and and, and there was a lot of conflict in your house. And maybe, you know, uh, you grew up without a father. And you wish you could have had a father, but he died, and so you, you, you grew up kind of alone. Or maybe you grew up in a, a divorced home where mom and dad, uh, one of them left, and, and you felt responsible, but then ultimately realized it's not your fault, and you held God responsible. Maybe there were losses, setbacks in life. You know, you had a, a, a dream, and it, and it fell apart. You had, you know, a, a financial investments you made, and you lost it all. You had a bankruptcy, and then it became a bankruptcy, and then you had a, a failed venture, and, and maybe a failed relationship, and you tried again, and you got hurt, and you, at some point in all of that, you're like, come on, God. What's up with all of this? I think people are like that. The worst kind of pain that I would say that's out there today is when you lose a child, We've had people in this church, people who are in this room that I know who've lost a child. I don't think there's a more painful thing on the planet that I can think of than to outlive one of your children. For years, I was, um, some of you know this, have been around a while, but I was the police chaplain here in Ashland for many, many years. And one of my illustrious duties was to try to prevent somebody from making a big mistake. You can fill in the blanks on that, right? Get involved, use, use your gift to gab, and try to talk somebody off the, the ledge, as it were. And, and when that was possible, you know, it was, it was, it, when it was successful, praise the Lord. But sometimes it wasn't successful. Sometimes I had to show up when the problem already took place, when the tragedy already occurred. And so the other part of my job description was to show up and sometimes, somehow, some way, bring solace and bring some kind of comfort to, to, to calamity and to confusion and to, and to something destructive that had happened. And and, and it wasn't uncommon that this would, this would happen. I can remember one occasion around the corner here where a young boy, uh, 16 years old, just got his license, and his 7- or 8-year-old sister were in a car, and there was uh, ultimately a vehicular homicide, and, and uh boy lost control, wrapped his car around a tree, and he and his sister died. And I remember being asked to go with an officer to the scene and, and kind of pray for people and comfort people and, you know, give last rites and, and things like that. But the worst part wasn't who was gone, but who was still here. And remember an officer asking me if I would accompany him and would I consider talking to their mother. And so I remember driving over to Natick, very close to where our campus is now, and going to this mother's place of work to tell her what had happened. How many know that job sucked? Just to be transparent this morning. That was the worst, of one of the worst experiences. And I can remember going there. I remember thinking, I'm going to say something, and these words are going to come out of my mouth that are going to change this woman's life forever, parenthetically, for the worse. And I don't remember what I said. To be honest, I don't remember what I said, but I do remember this. I remember sitting down. I remember saying it to her and telling her as carefully and as discreetly and as sensitively as you could ever do something like that. And God help me. And then, and then I just, I'll never forget 
the hollow, numb, shocked face of that mother as she, it just grafted on my brain, as she attempted to process this tragedy and this loss of a child. And I remember thinking, as I'm leaving, God, where are you in all of that? Where are you? What, 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 what kind of God, what, what, the cruelty of this, what is this all about? And why am I doing this on a Sunday morning at church when we're supposed to be lifted up and we're supposed to celebrate God? Because you know what happens in stories like this? And you can insert your story because you all have a painful story. Because pain is personal. But what happens in this situation is, and this influences everything in your life, and this is kind of our big idea. Often our personal pain motivates our private convictions. I'm trying to make a point that I think you cannot separate yourself from. We have to be honest that before we formulate our belief system, our worldview, we have to understand that your private, your 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 personal, your your convictions about something were influenced by your personal pain. Your private convictions have been influenced, motivated, interpreted, grafted to you sometimes because of the pain that you've experienced as everybody tracking with me. So before you go forward, please understand, yeah, there's tons of pain out there and the pain makes you just go, come on, really? I get that. And that's true. And that's why sometimes now as a pastor, when people say, well, what's up with this? And they try to stump the pastor or stump a Christian or you've heard these people, they throw these questions out at you. I've had many people say to me, I love this series because now I feel, I feel informed or I feel, you know, I've got, a, I've got a, an answer. Well, good, 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 good. But, but the truth is, in some of the questions, that answer is not really solving the problem. Because underneath that is a deeper question. That's why when somebody says, what's up with pain and suffering? If God's so good, why would he allow this? And I would say oftentimes now, why do you ask that? What happened? Because, because underneath that question is probably some personal pain. That's why they're seeing you with that question on the surface, because there's a deeper question underneath. In other words, this cannot be handled, navigated at a head level. We have to be honest and say it's also a heart level. There's an intellectual thing we need to grasp, but there's an emotional thing that we need to connect with as well. Yes, they're big questions, no doubt about it. But for some of you, they won't be answered until we're honest that they are both intellectual and emotional at the same time. So where does evil and suffering come from? Let's talk about this. And I'm going to give you what I think is one of the more satisfying answers to that in principle. Okay, and we don't have time to unpack all this. I'm starting you in a dialogue. I'm starting you on a journey that you need to go on yourself. Get this book. Get, get into your work. Follow some really, really um, uh, excellent theologians on this that I can recommend. Mark Clark is one of those. who's an apologist or Lee Strobel, things like that. But this to me helps me personally because it helps me understand the Christian God, my God, how he works, how he thinks, how he views things. And all of this evil and suffering it, it, it comes from this idea. It comes from the paradox that freedom creates. The paradox that freedom creates. Now, I'll first start with an external point of view, a worldly point of view, an evolutionary point of view. An evolutionary point of view, sometimes referred to as determinism, says, well, evil and suffering, let's deal with that. Everything is biologically and genetically determined, and there's no room for free will. That would be an evolutionary thought process. A parallel to this in Christianity I would say an imperfect one, is what's called predestination. Has anybody ever heard of this before? Predestination. Okay, 
this is a huge subject, but fundamentally it's God's controlling everything, and when life isn't going well, well, it's God who ruined it. And you have no say. It's been predetermined or predestined. And so some people refer to this sometimes as fatalism. And what I think is both of those positions are imperfect and inaccurate. And this is, I'm, I'm offering you to, to you a summation. And some of this is my opinion as your pastor. So this is not doctrine. This is my experience and opinion, this next point, okay? But I think it's, I still think it's right. All right. My personal conviction is that I believe God has complete control, but he allows within his control a certain sphere of freedom. Is everybody tracking with me? God is in control. I can make a case for that biblically. He is sovereign. He has his providential will. That is the the big picture of what God is going to do on the earth. Let me tell you something. He's going to get it done. The Bible says in Proverbs 19.21, many of the plans in a man's heart, it's the Lord's purposes that prevail. What's that mean? It means God's going to get his purposes done, but man may have his own idea what he's going to get done. So what we need to do is, we need to understand is, man inside of God's sovereign and providential will has a certain sphere of freedom and influence choice and opportunity because he's been given free will agency and sometimes that works for good and sometimes it works for bad sometimes it's good for you sometimes it's bad for you sometimes it's good for people sometimes it's bad for people inside of God's control is everybody tracking with me so okay I don't totally get all right I'll think about your relationships that's something we all can relate to and this this connects with all of us whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian we all wrap our minds around a word and experience a word and love a word called love. Everybody say love. Turn to your neighbor and say, I love you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Be careful. Be careful. Some singles are like, yes. All right. See, love, unless you are completely psychotic, right, it's a value that we have. You don't have to be a Christian to value that. You can have your own homemade religion. You can be an atheist. You can be a Christian. Christian, the basis of Christianity is love. God so loved us. We love because he first loved us, right? But think about this. Within that word, connect this to this principle, this paradox of freedom. Love only works when it is freely given. Love only works when it's freely given. In other words, how many of you have kids? Kids? All right. I have four children, and I've said this many times. You must love kids. No, I love my wife. We had kids. Uh, That's what happened. But when we were having kids, there would be conflict, where two or more are gathered, there will be conflict. Uh, and so we had, we had girls, and the girls, would, they, would, they would bicker. My, wife, my mom used to say that word, stop your bickering, stop your bickering. I don't even know what bicker means, but I've adopted that into my vocabulary. Bicker, 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 bicker. And so the girls would be bickering, and, and finally I'd bring them, to, bring them to me. Come on, bring them to the court of the father. And, and, um, <clears throat> and then I'd say, okay, you guys, need to get, you guys need to get along. You need to stop this. And, you know, Morgan, you need to say you're sorry to your sister. And Mallory's like sitting there like, yeah, you need to say sorry to me. And I'd say, say sorry to your sister. She goes, Sorry. Say, I forgive you. I forgive you. You know, all right, now I want you to kind of make up. Say, I love you, because she's your sister. I love you. How many know this is not working, okay? Is everybody tracking with me? Your kids are like that with you. They don't, you say, you know, you should love me. My kids don't come home every day and be like, beloved father. You know, good mother. No, it's it's not that way. You know, when I was a principal of the school, Metro West Christian Academy, uh, our school, for many years I was called the headmaster, and uh, my wife hates this, but I call her the headmistress at home, and, uh, 
And when I was the headmaster, um, I would discipline kids different times. It would be like in a room like this, and I'm, I'm doing a chapel service, and some kid's always acting up. He always wants to be, you know, the class clown. And, of course, I always identify with them and love them, but anyway. Um, but this one kid, I can remember he's standing up, and he wouldn't sit down. I'd say, sit down. He said, he just wouldn't sit down. I'd say, sit down. He wouldn't sit down. I said, sit down, or I'll make you sit down. And so he sat down. I'm like, Phew, finally. And then he looked at me, and he goes, but I'm standing up on the inside. What? I'm thinking in my head, I will duct tape you to a wall. Where do you think that comes from? Anyway. So, so see, there's a, what is that? It's freedom. That's freedom. It's the paradox of freedom, you know? I gave her my heart. She broke it. Freedom. You know, I, I made that investment and he stole it from me. Freedom. Uh, you know, I, I spoke some really unkind words to my boss. Well, go say you're sorry. You know, I don't want to. Freedom. That's what it is. It's the paradox. Love, unless it's given freely, isn't really love. But there's a shadow side to freedom. In the same way you can, are free to love, you're free to hate. In the same way you're free to forgive, you're free to hold a grudge. In the same way you're free to give, you're free to take. Is everybody tracking with me? And you know that. That's the paradox of freedom. We all have the power to do good or evil with our freedom. That's the potential of this paradox. And so that sort of, and I push this way out, that answers the problem to why is there evil and suffering on the earth. The, the planet problem that we have now is this paradox. What's at the center of the stockpiling of nuclear weapons? Freedom. War or peace? Freedom. Marry or divorce? Move on. Stick it out. Freedom. That's the paradox, everybody. And the same is true in our relationship with God. He doesn't want you to be forced into relationship with him. He wants you to want to, not have to. God wants you to freely love him and surrender your life to him and submit to his principles, submit to his moral law inside his providential will so that you can experience the personal plan of God for your life. That's what he's trying to do with us. But man Messed up a perfect system in the garden. Post-creation, God creates utopia. Naked with, with everything you could possibly want in a garden. Come on, somebody. That's a good, good God. That's a good, good father. All right? But man chose of his own free will agency to violate the one rule, the one the one principle, by the way, born out of protection, not restriction, and there is no freedom without a boundary or a restriction. You cannot appreciate freedom without a restriction. And God just made one. So we messed up, and in this broken system, we'll see at the end of this message, how he fixed it. Because he's so good. He's so good. But in order for us to go forward, people want to demand an answer from Christians, and we'll get to that. But before we go there, we have to be fair and say, Everybody has to answer this question, why is there evil and suffering in the world, not just Christians. And so let's look at some of the other alternatives that are out there in the world today. Let's look at, let's look at other religions. Let's look at Buddhism, okay? Buddhism is, is very popular in the East and the West, and there are many different strands. But basically, Buddhism says you transcend your suffering by detachment, by detachment. And you, you have to kind of separate from those longings and those desires and if you do that successfully, you'll experience nirvana. Okay, in other words, you have a dream house that, um, 
because that you always wanted and you, you just desired this dream house and just get, you're getting ready to put a deposit down and the market crashes and you can't have it and you're sad and you're upset and you're depressed. Buddhism says you need to detach yourself from that. Buddhism says, but, but which maybe that's, okay, maybe that's okay and that's doable, but sometimes with, with places and things, that's not so hard. But what about when it's people, Buddhism? What about detaching yourself from the pain of a family member who's dying of cancer or from a relationship that's split and divorced and you just detach yourself and then you get out of that nirvana? That's Buddhism. Let's look at the next one. Everybody with me? Islam. You, this is a summary of like a lot of strands of this particular religion. It's huge, but you overcome your suffering by submission to God who caused your suffering in other words, he's out there and he's like, you're going to suffer, you're going to suffer, you're going to suffer. I decide. That's, and some people think the Christian God is like that, and that's not true. But you need to, you need to submit to that and just kind of come underneath that. You're going to suffer, and, and, it's, and, and, it's, and it's, it's my decision, it's my choice. It's kind of a, hmm, not so great. All right, now here's another one, Hinduism. Now this is an eclectic religion. Some people say in the Hindu religion there are hundreds of thousands of gods, at the very least, tens of thousands of gods. Many gods, many names. Inside this religion is this word you all see right there on the screen that we've all heard before, this word what? Karma. A lot of times we, we hear this word thrown around like good karma. That's good karma. But let me know there's bad karma too in this religion, okay? Bad karma is basically suffering is karma and you can't interfere with the suffering. So the true understanding of this in Hinduism is if you're suffering, it's just karma. And, and what goes around comes around. And we, again, we joke about it sometimes. I heard one guy, he had a bumper sticker on his car, and he said, it said, your karma just ran over my dogma. <laughs> you guys don't get it. Just don't get it. Just don't get it. These jokes are so good. Anyway, but that's the, ens- the essence of Hinduism is you're getting what you deserve. That's the bad side of karma. Nobody likes that part. In fact, Pastor Mark in the book, The Problem of God, he went to India and he saw all the poverty and all the suffering and he was walking down the street with a guide and the guy was educating him on the country and he wanted to give some money to this person who was suffering. The guy says, you can't do that. He says, why can't I do that? He said, because they're suffering for something they did in a past life and if you, if you give, you're going to interfere uh, with their situation, and you improve their condition, but you're going you're gonna to hurt their future by doing so. They're going to suffer more in another life because, because it's a karma principle. Is everybody with me out there? Now, the one I wanted to camp on the most was this one, naturalism. Everybody say naturalism. This is kind of in that evolutionary lane, okay, that we talked about last week. There's no meaning or purpose to suffering. You can't add to it. But you can if it helps you fix your problem. In other words, this is survival of the fittest. If, you, if it gets you a little better, well, then go for it. But it's, it's a function of biology more than anything. In other words, there's no intelligent design. There's no moral force through this lens or this view or this kind of windshield on life. You're just a random genetic mutation by default, not by design. And so if, if there's no moral force behind everything, then, and then there's no meaning to life, therefore, um, there's no meaning or purpose to suffering. If you don't have any formal meaning to life because you're just a random collection of atoms, 
then how could there be uh, a purpose to suffering? Everybody tracking out there? Some of you getting it? Some of you like, uh-huh. So, in other words, this, this view, it's, 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 there's no meaning or purpose to suffering because there's no meaning to life. How can there be if that's the case? Now, this next story I'm going to give you is kind of connected to this naturalistic view. And it's, it's a dark story, but it's a true story. There was this girl, her name is Melissa Drexler. Uh, this happened 20 years ago, 1997-ish. She was 17 years old, and she went to a high school prom. On her way to the high school prom, um, she, unbeknownst to everybody, including her parents, she was nine months pregnant going to the prom. She goes to the prom, and she goes into labor at the prom. Goes into a bathroom, delivers the baby, cuts the umbilical cord, goes over to the sink of the bathroom, cleans up, strangulates the baby to death, and throws it in a garbage can. Get this, and then goes back out to the prom and dances the night away with her friends. Why am I telling you that? Hang on. An MIT psychologist, an evolutionary theorist, he said this. This His name is Steven Pinker. This was in the November 2nd, 1997, New York Times, also in the Boston Globe. So you can look this up. I did. It was unbelievable. The article was called, Why They Kill Their Newborns. And in this article, he attempted to explain why she did what she did from an evolutionary or naturalistic standpoint. In other words, let me give you a justification for what she did. Um, and as horrifying as it is, it was his sort of defense. He was using this to defend naturalism. Why mothers do this to their, to their newborns. And I'm hitting this because I want you to see the outcomes of certain worldviews. In other words, every, every behavior is preceded by a belief. Eventually, our beliefs eventually are going to affect our behaviors. Is everybody tracking with me? That's why it's so critical that we have a biblical worldview on the world in which we live and that we see things right. In particular, we see people right. And so here's what he said in, his, in one of his quotes, direct quotes. He says, it's hard to maintain that neonaticide, which is a word he made up. The word is actually infanticide. Neonaticide was just kind of a, he gave new New terminology, new definitions to justify existing behavior, but infanticide was the word. He says, hard to maintain, that's an illness. See, we would hear that story about that girl and think, oh my gosh, she's sick. She needs help. He's like, no, 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 no. When we learn that it has been practiced and accepted through most cultures in history, and you know what? He's right. Spartans, you ever heard of the Spartans, you know? The Spartans they would have children, and if the children came out in any way deformed or imperfect in their estimation, they would put that child in a jar, put it out on the curb, and if nobody took it, they would just let it die. This has happened historically from culture to culture through the centuries. So, so he's right, but it's born out of this naturalistic view. So he goes on and he says, two other uh, psychologists said this, they argued that a capacity for neonaticide is built into the bio- biological design of our parental emotions. In other words, it's normal what she did. See how we can normalize behaviors based on beliefs? All right? Then he goes on. He says, mammals are extreme among animals in the amount of time, energy, and food they invest in their young. And humans are even more extreme among mammals. So he's, he's equating us to, to other, you know, animals in a sense. Now, how many of your parents again? Parents, you know it takes a lot of time and energy an effort to raise a kid, right? I mean, a lot. 
Like, and, and, and you need a lot of energy. Like, I mean, first 10 years, you don't sleep. Second 10 years, you sleep with one eye open. Like, where are they going? Where are they going? You know what I mean, what's going on? Did I just hear somebody go out the window? Then the next 10 years, you don't sleep, and you could because you've been so used to being up all your life. When they were young, you thought they were so expensive. Then you realize over time, as they get taller, they become more expensive. How many know what I'm talking about? And then you got cars, and you got weddings, and you got college. Can you guys all extend your hands to me right now? Just pray for me right now. Thank you, Jesus. Pray for pastor. He's in that phase of life. Okay. But the point is, I beg to differ, sir. We are different than the monkeys and the penguins and the birds of the air. But he's trying to put us in the same same package. See, if you're a bird and you give birth, as soon as that thing is hatched, it's like, okay, everybody, it's time to fly. You know what I mean? Go, right? And if that bird doesn't fly, go. Hopefully, are you going to fly? Oh, hey. Well, thank God we got five more. Who's up next, kids? <laughs> that's a bird's eye view of parental development, everybody. But that's not a people view or a God view, right? So he goes on, he says, Parenting is a limited resource, and the mammalian mothers decide. See, this, this view has affected things like birth. When is, what it, when is conception? First trimester, second trimester, after birth, you know, birth, after birth. See, this affects everything. So a mammalian mother can decide whether to allot it to their newborn or their current and future offspring. If a newborn is sickly or if its survival is not promising, they may cut their losses and favor the healthiest in the litter and try again later on. In other words, this girl, oh, you know what, I'm 17, and I, it's not, this is no time for me to have a kid right now, and so I'm just going to have to cut my losses. I can do this again later. Trash can. That's what he's saying, everybody. You guys seeing this? And I'm like, honey, you shouldn't have had sex. You need some good parents to help you. Like, we're living in a crazy world. Some of you guys don't like that point, but that's okay. So do you, I just want you to see, do you see where a godless evolution of thought can lead? I want you to see where it can go. This is real. This is 20 years ago, everybody. These things are 20 years ago. So where does life begin for you? This is what, this is what they say. They say, for most biologists, birth is as arbitrary a milestone as any other. Many mammals bear offspring as they hit the ground. The usual primate assembly process spills, oh, maybe in the first years in the world. And you know what? It complicates the definition of personhood. See, if you can't be clear on when birth takes place, then I don't know when we're going to call somebody a person. Could be year one, could be year three, could be year five. That's where things are societally now. That's why you have things like I talked about last week, like eugenics and things like that. See, people are always redefining things, or you can have different definitions about things. So don't blame her for strangulating this child. Maybe that newborn wasn't even a person yet. So you might be like, I'm disgusted by this. This repulses me. And I would just say to you, that's what they were doing. The people writing back articles, they were all upset. But if there's no moral law, (coughs) if there's, no moral force behind that law, if there's not a God that influences that morality, then he's got a good argument. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm disgusted. Why? Why are you? So that's, that's naturalism. Now let's look at New Age. You guys enjoying this? This is a summation of New Age. New Age is, is a, the New Age gets a lot of, you know, 
sometimes ripping on it, just like Christianity. You know, I've heard people say crazy things about it. You know, I heard reincarnation's coming back, you know, and things like that. People say stuff like that. But the summation of, reincar- of, re- of uh, New Age is positive thinking defeats our negative realities. Positive thing. Just think positive. Just think positive. You know, and, and that's, sometimes it's just not going to be enough. Positive thinking is not going to take the wrinkles off your face. Positive thinking is not going to stop the gray hairs from coming. Are we, are we in agreement on that, everybody? Positive thinking is not going to, you know, just, you know, end, you know, you know the issues with war and, and bring peace to the world. No, it'll help, right? But it's not going to deal with all of that in the process. So we got to get a better answer. And so Christianity's answer is this. Jesus answered suffering by embracing it. Come on, somebody. Can I get an amen out there? So what's the answer to evil and suffering? Jesus said, I see it. I want to help, and I'm going to come down, and I'm going to show you I understand it, I embrace it, and I actually help you through it in the process. There's a biblical passage that I will only highlight this morning for the sake of time, but it's taken from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 9. You can look it up, but it's a biblical prophecy, and it's referring to what's called the divine exchange, that Jesus identified with our pain and with our suffering, and he took it upon himself. 500 years before he came to earth, imagine that. It was prophesied how he would die, how he would suffer, the pain that he would endure, sinless and perfect on our behalf, even die as a criminal, looking like he's a criminal. And he did that for you and me so that so that our situation, when we face a problem, when we're going through suffering, he would be able to say, I identify with what you're going through. And so what did he do? Uh, he, he faced excruciating pain so that when we experience excruciating pain, we could say, my God understands. My God identifies with me. In fact, uh, Rabbi Zacharias says, it's, no, it's not coincidental that the very word excruciating literally means out of the cross. See, while he was there on the cross, he was, he was embracing all the pain and suffering of the world, and he didn't have to, but he did it for us. I understand that, PD, but why? And see, we're preoccupied with the need for a reason. Isn't that, isn't that this is back to that intellectual versus emotional part. We all want a reason for our suffering. But remember, man broke the system originally. So God's effort to fix the system wasn't to give you a reason, but to redeem your situation. So look, here it is. It's coming up. There we go. We don't get a reason as much as we get redemption. See, God's not trying. He can't redo. He can't redo everything, make everything go away. So what he does is because man broke the system in the garden, he came and said, you know what? I'm going to work it all together for good. I'm going to redeem this. Something out of this tragedy, something out of this difficulty, I might not be able to have a reason for everything for you, but I'm going to give you redemption for everything that's happened to you. Does that make sense, everybody? And then what happens is a Christ follower, when we embrace that, then in spite of what's happened to us, we can grow. Look at, look at what we know is true. Sometimes you succeed not in spite of your suffering, but because of it. See, I believe, and the Christian experience has taught me, that your character is not, is not made in adversity. It's demonstrated or exemplified in adversity. It's made before. And so the, the Christian experience teaches us in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, 11, 3 through 11, it says, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. <laughs> so the Christian message isn't no problems, no situation, no suffering. No, it's rejoice. 
that rejoice is kind of like grit your teeth while you smile. I'm in pain right now, but ha, bless God, I'm rejoicing. It, it just, it's got a grit to it. For we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character. And the character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. And we were utterly, when we were helpless, Christ came and ch- at, at just the right time, and he died for us as sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice. Everybody say rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. You know it to be true that adversity sometimes for some people is the thing that reveals their character. It's the thing that moves them forward in God. And I've been in a lot of difficult situations in my life. In fact, I've, been, I've done many, many funerals in my life. And sometimes at those funerals, what I see on people's faces is despair. And I see people going far away from God. And sometimes I see people who are close to God in those situations. It's amazing how it reveals what's really happening on the inside of us. In fact, when people are suffering, it shows us kind of where they're in their position. And what I've discovered is that no one is neutral spiritually. Suffering never leaves you spiritually neutral. You either grow closer to God or you grow further away. Is that not true, yes or no? And so I would say to you, with the suffering and the problems and the difficulties you're facing today, where or how and what direction have you moved? Have you moved closer to God or have you moved further away in the process? And maybe it's because you need to have a connection between what's happening in your head and what's also happened to your heart in the process. But I would say also, what's the alternative? Is, is it a godless universe? Is, are you being punished like Islam would say? Is it karma or is it Jesus who came to embrace you. Look at what he does. This is the principal takeaway. The God who embraced suffering longs to embrace you. Would you stand to your feet as I pray for you guys as we conclude our service today? Did you get something out of that, everybody? Praise the Lord. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, let me pray for you. I know that this has a personal but also intellectual challenge to it but with every head bowed every eye closed please 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 I would just say to you personally where you're at just what is the Holy Spirit saying to you one thing I think he's saying is he understands whatever you're going through I wish I could tell you more but you can in relationship with him he understands he knows heartbreak he knows loss he knows pain and suffering he knows what it is to die he wants to embrace you, come close to you in your pain. And so in the last minute of the service, you know, let's, let's just go back emotionally to that place, maybe where we pulled away from God. Maybe you know where that was. And you decide to come closer to him right now. You decide to say yes to God and open up your heart to God again. Maybe you're willing to bring him even your pain. And I would say to you that If you're willing to exchange your pain, he'll give you peace. 
He won't give you peace like the world gives. He'll give you a different kind of peace, a peace that comes from within, a peace that even though the world's nuts and crazy and filled with all kinds of problems, you can have peace. Jesus wants to do that for you. That's why he came to earth to show you how to do that and to deal with all the stuff that you would have to deal with. And if you'd like to know him personally, I promise you he can help you with your pain. So if you're here today and you've never come to that place, that personal relationship with God, if you will, He'll help you with your personal pain. If that's you, with every head bowed, every eye closed, would you just raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I want to come. I want to come to Jesus. I want to surrender pain for peace. God bless you. Yes, God bless you, sir. Yes, yes, yes. Is there anybody else I'm missing? Good hand, good night. So I don't miss you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your courage. Those of you who raise your hand, thank you so much. You can put your hands down. Would you pray this prayer with me, church, and join these people as they pray? Say this. Say, Jesus, today... By faith, I decide with my free will that you gave me to begin a new story today, a redemptive story. Take that which is broken and redeem it. I give you my life, the wheel of my life. I surrender to you. All the pain, all the problems, all the sin, all the sickness, by faith, by grace through faith, I come to you today. Jesus, save me from myself and lead me into all truth. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a big hand clap for those decisions. Thank you, Pastor Mark, as you come. God bless you guys. Thank you for your attention.